Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Good morning, everyone. David Gurra and Tom Keen. Mr. Gurra on assignment in Sun Valley, Idaho. How do you be Scarlett? How do you be on assignment in Sun Valley, Idaho? I was just Idaho? wondering that myself. I mean, come on. You know, do, do they, they never say Scarlet food. Please go to Idaho. No, they I've don't. And, you know, it's it's so odd. He, he goes for an entire week at a time in the middle of July. It's it's all very suspicious. Isn't it's it? very suspicious. Scarlet <laughs> food with us, if you didn't notice that. That's always a good thing. We will try to refrain, diminish down the hockey, diminish down the New York Rangers uh, discussions. Although we, there's a lot to be excited for on that front. There is, too. And Howard Ward will be with us here in a moment. Sometimes Howard wears his New York Rangers tie into Bloomberg surveillance. He's not doing it today, though. It's He's only not doing blue it. And, blue and what? White, blue, and ivory? It's, it's, it's British. It's, it's, it's British to do. We'll get to Howard Ward in a minute. We say good morning. Economics, finance, investment, politics, international relations. Huge day. Huge news flow out of Washington. We'll do that along uh, the way. Bloomberg surveillance this morning. Howard Ward uh, with us, with Gabelli. And uh, it's a wonderful time to talk to Howard Ward because you stated earlier, Howard, you're more cautious here, the, the elevation, the PE multiples and such. When do, or are we even close to getting back to where yield is competition for dividend? Are, are, we, are we miles away from where we go, I can make this in a bond, I can make this in a stock? Um, well, not really. When you look at the historical numbers where you had, let's say, for the last 30 years, an average yield on the 10-year treasury of 6%, and now it's 2.4%, that's still not very attractive. Dividend yields uh, right around 2%. So dividend really is, if, if, for people that can have the patience to buy stocks and let the dividends grow, you probably, uh, if, if you can handle the volatility of stocks, probably better off going the, the dividend route. I think that's been a major source of demand for stocks in recent years. So I'd, bonds, you know, bond yields have a long ways to go before they really start to uh, be competition for stocks. That's not to say that higher interest rates will not uh, force a penalty on stocks because I think they will. But I will say this, that with all the talk about where bond yields are today, they're basically where they were in December of 2015 mm. when the Fed made their very first tightening measure of this cycle. So um, we've been trading between, let's say, uh, a 2% yield and a 2.6% mm -hmm. yield ever since, and right now we're sort of in the middle of that. Howard, are you one of those people who are worried about an unwind of the risk parity trade? Uh, specifically in what sense? Well, with bonds and stocks falling. I mean, things have stabilized the last two days, but for a while last week, there was a lot of talk that there was going to be this unwinding of uh, risk parity trades in which stocks and bonds would fall at the same time. And there were so many levered bets on that positive rate stock correlation. Yeah, I, 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 Scarlett, I think that's a possibility, and it, it certainly could happen over a very short term. But what I do think is more likely to happen 
is that bond yields decline in the face of weakening economic activity and the stock market declines um, due to uh, issues that might have to do with growing trade friction, because I think that's going to be a big issue over the next uh, several months, uh, because the Fed is also tightening. I think that's another problem You know, in terms of policy. Trade policy is a problem, headwind for stocks. Monetary policy is a headwind for stocks. Fiscal policy is doing nothing to help stocks. And so I think the economic news deteriorates. Uh, bond yields go down, mm. not up. And the risk parity trade may they may go down in sympathy every now and then, but but I think the primary trend for the next five percent move, let's say in stocks, I think stocks are down uh, is the next five percent move, and uh, and bond yields will likely be going down with them. All right, so we'll continue to see mm. uh, a move into the safe haven of bonds. Um, you mentioned the economic surprise index and how the rate of surprises from the data has been coming down. There's been some research done. People have pointed out how if you look at a Citigroup Economic Surprise Index over the last seven or eight years, it bottoms around June in each of the previous six years. And this is a self-reverting, self-correcting, mean-reverting index for the most part. And we've bounced back up. What does that tell you? Well, we've had a little bit of a bounce after a really a, a three-month collapse. And so if we look a little bit deeper at some of the underlying economic data, we know that uh, auto sales are soft, and production cuts have been announced for this quarter. We know housing activity has slowed. We know commercial and industrial loan growth is slowing. We know credit delinquencies are growing across the credit chain. We know retail sales have been soft, and inventory to sales ratios have been rising. We know durable goods orders, especially ex-defense and, and, and aircraft, are soft. We know payroll growth is slowing. I, we know I've the never, NIP, is, NIPA profits is, actually declined. This in is the, depressing. Would somebody get my medications, please? <laughs> NIPA profits actually declined last quarter. They didn't rise like S&P profits. And, uh, uh, we, we, as, and as I mentioned earlier, so trade right. policy is about to get, I think, very heated. Because the 100 days that Trump gave China to negotiate a trade deal expires next okay. week. Is it, so are we ninety four percent in cash? No, uh, <laughs> because you know this is this is really hard. This market timing yeah. stuff. I don't advocate it. I'm just saying that you will probably get a better entry point for stocks, and and otherwise you should try to be defensively positioned. So what does that mean? That's a great phrase. That's a famous Howard Ward phrase. <laughs> Help our, our our audience. What is the tactical to do, given an Uber bull's caution? You well, if you want to stay in the market, you 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 gravitate towards the more defensive names, the, the names that have lower beta, uh, specifically lower beta, because that's been the most reliable banks metric. No, not not the banks. The banks, the bank trade has been conditioned upon rising rates and rising loan growth, yeah. and I don't think either one of those is going to pan out. So, what's a lower beta staples? defensive position? Healthcare, consumer staples, utilities would be the three primary sectors. In fact. The latest new position in my portfolio is Next Era Energy, which is an electric utility, the old Florida Power and Light. It's the Whoa. leading. It's the, it's the leading uh, generator of uh, uh, solar and 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 principally wind alternative energy in the United States. Wait, you you are CIO of Growth Equities, right? Yes. So this is a business that uh, is growing at around. In total, including the regulated part, at about 8%. And I will challenge you to find consumer staples names that are growing at you 8%. Know, they're probably growing much less, and they're priced much higher. This is fascinating. This is the old Florida power and light. 
It is. Back in our, back in our Scarlet, uh, Howard and I remember this, where you owned like six utilities and one was always FPL. Right. And this is next. What separates them from Dominion or the other victims of our ute? It's their large presence in wind power and solar power. And I think it's not well known that in much of the South and Central United States right now, without any subsidies, wind power is cheaper than the alternatives. Can you can you uh, book in here five year dividend growth of ten percent per year? That's a phenomenal number for for next Terra Energy. I would feel more comfortable with an 8% dividend growth. It's yielding 2.8% now. And uh, there is a much smaller cap uh, subsidiary that they have a big stake in called Next Era uh, Energy Partners. It's about a a $1.2 or $3 billion uh, MLP. And the dividend yield is higher, and the dividend growth rate is going to be tied to their growth in alternative uh, energy. And, And that might be a better play for people that... Or really focused yeah. on the income. And utilities, folks, of course, you can't make money in utilities. Mm-hmm. 10-year track record of Florida Power and Light, 13.1% per year. It's just a t- – Scarlett, you can't make money in utilities. 13.1% per year. Well, that, that's yeah. extraordinary. That yeah. is the cliche. I'm looking here at the utilities index in the S&P 500. Price earnings, 18.2 times for Nextera, NEE, the ticker Correct. there. Correct. Uh, the PE is 22, and the estimated PE, the – And I think, and again, if you go back and look at the beta, you'll probably find it's something like 50. So uh, it's going to give you a lot of protection, historically has provided a lot of protection in a down market. It's outperformed in the last decade Dominion uh, by 250 basis points. This is a very wonky, this is almost like a Pim Fox conversation, (laughs) Scarlett. We've gotten into the land of Pim Fox. Well, on a Tuesday morning, how appropriate, right? That would be very good. Yeah, there's a lot going on this morning. We'll have much more for you, including uh, the politics of landscape. Rumor has it we'll have that on news as well. Well, Futures is back in session. Yeah. They're working. Futures negative two, Dow futures negative 17. Bloomberg Business Week relaunched. I want to bring it to your attention. Every week, an issue has a different theme. Last week, it was technology. Uh, the week before, it was jobs, a really good jobs issue uh, as well. They'll be out with a new issue in 48 hours. But uh, Bloomberg Business Week relaunched. Really can't say enough about it. Uh, is a, a great overview of whatever their theme of the week is. I like the thematic approach to it as well. David Gurra and Tom Keene, Mr. Gurra on assignment in Idaho. Scarlet Food, pick the short straw. Uh, we'll get here a few more minutes with Howard Ward, and then we have to turn to an important global debate. Um, Howard, I look at the equity markets. I look at all the mumbo-jumbo of Graham Dodd and Cottle and investment finance. The bottom line is a lot of people were wrong. The certitude was it's a single-digit world, and we haven't had that. Do you regress to the mean? Do you say, look, we had a double-digit reality, and are we going to be negative to get back to a single-digit world? I don't buy that for a minute. I just can't get that defeatist. No, but, Tom, Tom, things have changed. So we got a 10% long-term compounded return on stocks by way of essentially a 7% nominal GDP number and a 3% dividend yield. That's And, and, and the, the GDP number correlated exa- almost exactly to the rate of earnings growth. And we're no longer in a nominal 7% world. We're in a, at the moment, a nominal 3.5% GDP world. And maybe we can get that to 4 or 4.5%. And we have a 2% dividend yield on the S&P. So from this vantage point, the, the longer-term returns on stocks are no longer going to be 
They're more like 7%. Um, and in fact, if you now look back uh, over the last 10 years, I think that's just about exactly what we've had, although with a lot of volatility in between. So, uh, you know, and this, 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 this is part of the, you know, we had for 30 years or so real, GD, real GDP growth of 3.3% in the U.S. That was the trend line. And that's now closer to 2%. You talk about the dividends and how it's not as rich as it could be or has been in the past. We've seen companies, of course, plow their extra cash back into share buybacks, but that's tapered off quite a bit because prices are pretty high. And uh, Gina Martin-Adams and her team at Bloomberg Intelligence have done the research that show that uh, the rate of buybacks has slowed down quite a bit. What are you looking for in this earnings season when it comes to returning cash to shareholders? Well, I think, Scarlett, it's worth mentioning that corporations went on a binge of borrowing money in the in the debt market and using the proceeds to buy back stock yep. to the extent that their balance sheets are not nearly as secure or safe as they were prior to all this. And I think it's also worth mentioning, because if there is only one metric you want to look at to ask yourself is the stock, how, how fairly valued or how attractive the stock market is, uh, don't even look at earnings, but, but look at the value of the entire stock market relative to GDP. And currently, it's 140%. There's only one time in history when it's been higher, and that was in the first quarter of 2000, when it was 167% of, of GDP. So having said all that, when you're looking at earnings expectations for the current quarter, I don't think that they're going to be bad. Mm -hmm. I mean, we all know that these corporate managers are so good at managing earnings that every single quarter, 70-some percent of the earnings beat the the estimates. And that'll continue to be the case. That's going to continue to be the case. So uh, I'm not so focused on that. I think the guidance could be critical. Mm -hmm. I do expect that there will be some negative surprises on the guidance front. Uh, But Mm -hmm. in terms of the overall market... I'd be looking at the valuation right. and the fact that what we, we typically have three 5% corrections every year, and we haven't had one for the last year. We're going to rip up the script here with Howard Ward right now. Scarlett Fu with us as well. For our global audience, um, I, I, I can't begin to convey the excitement about Howard Ward and Scarlett Fu's New York Rangers. <laughs> There's a gentleman named Shattenkirk who I first saw with the St. Louis Blues. Good morning, Bloomberg 1061 FM Boston, who was a pride of Boston University. And Howard, before that, he was playing pond hockey just north of New York City, wasn't he? Well, Kevin's from New Rochelle, and you know, he spent He's some time. He's a local ta- boy. Local boy, and he wanted to come back to the Rangers, and he spent some time at the Brunswick School in Greenwich where he played hockey with my son, Chris. And uh, it was evident from the moment that Kevin hit the ice that this young man was a very special hockey player. And uh, he progressed from Brunswick to the U.S. uh, uh, Olympic or Junior Olympic program in Ann Arbor, spent a couple years there before becoming a terrier at BU. And Mrs. Lundquist, this is good for your husband, isn't it? (laughs) This is very good. This is very good for for the goaltenders of the New York Rangers. Um, One thing, of course, that people were worried about last spring was that he signed on with the Washington Capitals and that that was our one opportunity to get him. But, of course, it ended up not being. It was a, a, a tactical move on his part to to get into the playoffs and 
Yes, Kevin was in, Kevin was uh, in big demand as one of the top defensemen and and an offensive defenseman at that. Yeah. And uh, he did not go for the top dollar. Everyone knows that he wanted to be a ranger. He wanted to come home and play for his the, the team that he he grew up with. And so there's no doubt he took less money and he took a shorter contract than he could it, have had elsewhere. I should point out, folks, for those of you that follow basketball, it's the same idea. There's a huge pressure to leave college early, and he stayed at BU. He well, could have left BU early. Well, I think he left a year early. He left a er- year yeah. early, but a lot of other people after leave after winning their a freshman national year. championship, yeah. I might add. But they leave after their freshman or their sophomore year. He didn't do that. Yeah, no. In hockey, it tends to be more. You, I think the more standard yeah. situation, if you are a college hockey player that goes okay. pro, is you, you typically go after your junior year. Okay, is this stuff hockey talk, Scarlett? So you'll stay around at the end of the show. I think I will. Okay, yeah, very good. Howard Ward, thank you so much. He's our expert on the New York Rangers, and we're thrilled he's here today. I can say without question, this is the most important interview for all of us today uh, across economics, finance, and politics. And no, we don't have to talk about the madness of the Beltway. David Shulkin uh, has about eight other things to do besides serve the nation. He does that now in the tinderbox known as Veterans Affairs. He is the president's secretary of Veterans Affairs and has brought a medical tactical approach to what we do with our veterans. Secretary, wonderful to have you with us uh, today. I remember whatever the Pulitzer Prize winning article was about the scandal of Walter Reed Hospital a decade ago or whatever. We all have our horror stories of veterans affairs. You've brought a can-do, solution-braced approach. Give us one example of what you did day one. Well, first of all, uh, it's good to be here. And I think... uh that the country agrees that we're tired of reading about all the ways that we failed our veterans and it's time to fix this. And everybody agrees on this. This is not a political debate, is it? No, this is really a bipartisan issue. And um, so we're serious about making these changes. And this is something that the president actually ran on and is committed to doing this. So we're doing a lot of things, but one of the things we're making sure is those who have Healthcare needs are being seen and being seen in a timely fashion. So we've put into place same-day services in every one of our VA medical centers throughout the country for primary care and mental health. And we've also posted all of our wait times for everybody yeah. to see. I mean, they don't, they, Scarlett, they don't do that at the hospital up in Westchester. They don't do that. You know, it's a, it's a revolutionary idea. How bureaucratic is it? You did service at the great institution in Pittsburgh. You did service here, service there in general medicine. Did you expect a bureaucracy of doctors and nurses saying, no, 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 we don't do it that way, guy? Well, uh, what my experience was, I've spent my entire career in the private sector, so I came expecting it was going to be tough to make change. What I found was was that um, what the system needed was just new ideas and needed people to show them the way. But people want to be successful, particularly when they work in the VA. They're very mission-driven. And when you show them a different way of doing things, they're very open to it. And so I have not found it to be resistant to change. Do you have the institutional support, though, for uh, to make all these changes? You were 
confirmed by the Senate 100 to 0, which is unheard of in this uh, very partisan environment yeah. right now. What kind of support do you have from Congress, from the executive branch? Well, I'm very fortunate that there's just great leadership in Congress. Um, our chairman of our committees and our ranking members, both the Democrats and the Republicans, are completely united around making the changes necessary. And so when we have our committee hearings, there's, of course, debate over the right approach. But in the end, they get in a room, they decide what the right decision is, and they move forward. And does it matter that you were a part of the Obama administration as the Undersecretary of Health at the Department of Veterans Affairs? Does that play into anything? Well, I think that people understand that I don't approach this job in a political way. I approach it that this is a job that the country needs to get done, and I'm here to get it done. I also think it does help that people understand that I haven't changed my position on what needs to happen to fix the VA, whether I was in the Obama administration or in the Trump administration. I think that uh, President Trump uh, wasn't as concerned about anything other than getting this fixed for our veterans. Veterans medicine has been a lightning rod back to the Revolutionary War. Uh, to be honest, I've got ancestors that fought in this war, that war, and 40 years later, they were trying to get a check cut from somebody like Veterans Affair. Help our audience that believes it's a money pot for anybody that wants to come get it. How is the budget integrity? Folks, we say this about the guy that ran Morristown Memorial Hospital, like a real practicing hospital. How do you handle the cash and the money so that we know it's fair and audited? Well, I think uh, what we've seen over the past couple of administrations is more and more money flowing into VA, and it's not necessarily translated into better service or better results. So I've been very clear. I do not believe that fixing and reforming VA is a money issue. This isn't that we need um, you know, more funds to get this fixed. What we need are the best practices from the private sector, and we need to modernize the system. Yeah. And in terms of uh, auditing where our money is going right now, one of my major initiatives is to bring much more integrity to our fraud, waste, and abuse systems because I do believe that there are inefficiencies and uh, areas that we do need to audit much closer to make sure taxpayers are getting the best value. Well, speaking of modernizing the system, there are a lot of concerns for anyone who runs a huge bureaucracy about how to protect your system from cyber threats, from hacking. What are you doing on that end? How do you make the VA department hack-proof or as hack-proof as possible? Yeah, I wish that there was a way to be 100% hack-proof, but we have invested significantly in the last few years in cybersecurity, and we have systems in place that I feel confident in. Uh, we uh, essentially identify and protect against thousands of threats every day. And some of the recent threats that have hit hospitals, we have been able to detect and stop. So you've, you've, it's been tested several times. Though. Absolutely. Tested every day. Your father had the courage to deal with psychiatry, I believe, at Fort Sheridan mm -hmm. ages ago. This is a, a, a very delicate topic, the psychiatric framework of our veterans, the trauma of battle and combat. What is the new, new there? We've been fighting two wars. And what I notice, sir, is the, is the chronic nature of it, the year after your commitment to Afghanistan and Iraq. What will the VA do on the mental health front to assist these people? Well, uh, first of all, when I talk about 
the priorities that I have as secretary, there's only one clinical area that I talk about, and that is reducing veteran suicide. 20 veterans a day are taking their life, which is really just a statistic that's just hard to ever get used to accepting. And so uh, we are focused on this in a way that, unlike any other problem that we have in the VA, um, no other system is doing as much for behavioral health as the VA. And having said that, we have to be doing more. And that more includes uh, reaching out to the community, making sure that we're involving family members and others in veterans' lives, making sure that they're getting access and the right treatment, but also additional research so that we can find ways to make sure that we have more effective Mm -hmm. treatments. Obviously, for those who have fought on the front lines, there's a lot of damage done um, to you if you've been at the forefront of the fighting. What about from drone attacks? What kind of psychological impact does that have? Have you started to see that yet? Yes, we have. Um, I believe that um, in every war, there's a different way of experiencing conflict. Of course, in our most recent conflicts, they have been the IEDs that have caused not only tremendous physical damage, but significant invisible wounds and emotional damage. And so in drones, it's a very similar type of uh, emotional experience as an IED. Mm -hmm. You're having uh, devices come out of nowhere uh, and surprise attacks. And so it causes a emotional startle reaction Mm -hmm. that is very similar to what we see in post-traumatic stress. Thank you for visiting us today. David Shulkin, folks, is the ninth uh, United States Secretary for Veteran Affairs. Mr. Secretary, look forward to seeing you at our studios in Washington as well. David uh, Shulkin, Dr. Shulkin, thank you. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. That wasn't David Gurry heard. That was Scarlett Foo. And I told her, if the Rangers pick up Kevin Shattenkirk, you have to host. We did that with Howard Ward. Thank you to Howard Ward for... And I'm going to be here all week as a result. As a result. We talk about the Rangers and this big trade they had for Mr. Shattenkirk. And so then Scarlett will stay through the week, which is a good thing. Mr. Gura on assignment in Ida. Has there been a Gura sighting, Scarlett? Uh, he, I, think, like I think he... You know what? He did post on Instagram. I did spot some kale in the background. So... <clears throat> Yeah. He's he's holding true to what he normally does. Yeah. Um, Doug Bondo with us, with the Cato Institute, libertarian, some would say more conservative, but on an idea that that is away from the normal budget things of the Cato Institute, and that is North Korea. He's a senior fellow uh, working uh, a few years ago with President Reagan. That ages him uh, right there. We're thrilled that he's with us uh, right now. Uh Doug, wonderful to have you with us. What is the distinctive Cato view on how we should adapt and adjust to a unique North Korea? Well, I think we have to kind of look for some alternatives to the current policy that we're at. I mean, the North Korea is a very problematic actor. No one that I know of wants them to have nuclear weapons. Yep. 
But the reality is they want them not because they're crazy and nuts. They want them, I think, largely because they fear the U.S. and view this as being the best deterrent possible. You know, they've looked at Afghanistan. They've looked at Iraq. They've looked at Libya, where you know, Muammar Gaddafi negotiates away his nuclear weapons and his missiles. And as soon as the opportunity arises, the U.S. and Europe help take him out. You know, this is a regime that's committed to moving ahead. You know, it's not at all clear that even sanctions supported by China would necessarily stop them. You know, we don't have any good options here, but the more threats we make, frankly, the more justification we give them for building well, uh, nuclear weapons. One of the characters of your note is you worry less about bombing Alaska or, for that matter, the circle of that missile, if they ever develop it, would go to Queensland in Australia, and you take a real interest in the border between North uh, North Korea, North Carolina. Help me, Scarlett. North, I stayed up for the Home Run Derby. This uh, is what derby. happens, yes. Yeah, this gets speechless after the Home Run Derby. <laughs> Doug, I, 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 I look at the China border. It's really the first order condition. Give us an update as you see that river between China and North Korea. Well, the Yalu is not much of a barrier. You know, the, the North Koreans are working harder now to stop people from going across. But what, you know, if you want Chinese support, what you have to recognize, you know, China looks at that and thinks, oh, boy, we put sanctions on, North Korea collapses, we get 5 million refugees across the Yalu. We get factional fighting, we get maybe military combat, you know, we get stuff flowing across. This is not good for us. They also look at that and say, you know, isn't that nice? The U.S. wants us to essentially give them North Korea so they can have a united Korea allied with America and U.S. troops on the Yalu. We went to war in 1950 to stop that. You know, we're trying to put pressure on China without acknowledging why they view this as a security interest. And again, very problematic unless you're willing to acknowledge what is motivating them. It's very hard to get them on our side. Doug, you just came back from North Korea as well, didn't you? That's what I was there a month ago. What did you observe? I mean, there's obviously the official version, what uh, the Korean officials want you to see, want you to report back on, versus what you saw uh, in the undercurrent. Well, it's interesting. I was there 25 years ago. I mean, Pyongyang has changed a lot. I mean, it's much more kind of money there, newer buildings, has private automobiles, people have cell phones. You know, women dress very nice. They were very plain 25 years ago. Men are still very plain. But, you know, there are changes that suggest there's money. And to some extent, that's good in the sense that it suggests they have something to lose. On the other hand, it also shows that they've done reasonably well, despite the sanctions regime, you know, reasonably well over the years, despite, you know, all of the pressure the U.S. has put on them. You know, the consistent message I got out of that, you know, was they look at this as being, you Americans who put pressure on us, threatened us, we're doing this because we're, we don't like that. We're afraid of that. We're going to match nuke for nuke, as they put it. And it struck me that is part of the challenge, which is, you know, they look at this as being a national security issue. They don't you know, this is a weird political system. There's one person there. It's Kim Jong-un, the supreme leader. Mm -hmm. He's the guy everybody refers to. You know, but despite that, it doesn't mean they're not rational. I mean, they're evil, but they're not crazy. And I think that's the problem that the U.S. has yet to really address. Their reasons for why they do what they do, that came out of the meetings I had very consistently. You know, there's an argument, and I think you referred to it as well, that some people make about how the U.S. could just accept the reality of North Korea having nuclear weapons. Um, we spent more than a decade before finally acknowledging, for instance, that India and Pakistan have nuclear weapons. For us to get there, what would need to happen? 
Well, I think that what we need to look at, you know, is the question of do we think it's possible? And again, this is you know issue of bringing China in, you know, to get a verifiable freeze on activity. I don't think they will ever voluntarily give them up. You know, so then the question is, is, can you put pressure on the regime? Can you destroy it? Can you get regime change? All of those are things which, frankly, everybody would like. But you know, the process of getting there is what scares the Chinese. So can we come up with this process and say, look, the reality is they have them. I mean, we're talking perhaps 20 or so now. Far better if you could freeze that than deal with them a few years from now and they have 100 and they're still building more. Those are two very different scenarios. Doug, is our traditional military off the coast of North Korea is there a benefit to that? I think of 6,062 as the crew of the Carl Vinson. I don't know if that's the number. That's what Wikipedia says. But does it does it matter that the Navy is planted off North Korea again as a deterrent? Well, I mean, the problem here is the North Koreans, I don't believe, have any interest in starting a war. They know they'd lose. So sending another you know, aircraft carrier there, you know, sending B-2 bombers flying over, you know, in and of itself is probably more relevant to South Korea than North Korea. Uh. That is, if you want to reassure the South Koreans were there, it does it. It doesn't really tell the North Koreans anything they don't know. You know, they know the U.S. could bomb them out of existence. We don't even have to have an aircraft carrier there. We could use, I mean, if we really wanted to, we could use you know, nuclear weapons on our ICBMs. So the, the question is, what are, are you achieving anything in terms of the North? Are you making them more pliable? I think the answer is no. So then the question, well, does it help with China? Does it help with South Korea? Those are the questions you've really got to ask. I, I do think the problem is that when you're out there saying, we plan to bomb them, we're going to threaten them, we're thinking preemptive action. From their standpoint, if the U.S. is thinking about launching a preventive war, that's an even good, better reason to have a missile that could hit the U.S. so the U.S. knows there's a cost to that. Well, let's, uh, thank you so much. Doug. We look forward to continuous discussion. Unfortunately, I think we will, given uh, the news flow that's, other, uh, that's out there. Mr. Bandos with Cato Institute, their senior fellow, and we speak on our international uh, relations uh, with North Korea. It was a few years ago, and it was an important discussion and essay, Commitment, Rules, and Discretion. Charles Plosser has said this for his career, this at Cato, but also really across every other speech as the former president of the Federal Reserve System uh, in Philadelphia. Professor Plosser joins us uh, now. Charles Plosser, is Randall Quarles, as vice chairman in regulation, is he the beginning of a rules-based Trump Federal Reserve System. <laughs> good morning, Tom. It's good to be with you as always. And I, I'm very pleased with uh, the appointment or nomination of uh, Randy Quarles. I think he's going to be a, a great addition to the board. And um, so I'm actually a very uh, um, uh, encouraged by uh, his his nomination. And I think he'll be a great addition, particularly in Supervisionary. See how he did that, Scarlett? He didn't, he didn't answer my question. He Plosser's tap dancing around it, just like a pro federal. Come on, come on, Charlie. We've known each other forever. Randy Quarles has published on rules-based uh, uh, advantages. Are we? Is this the beginning of a rules-based Trump Federal Reserve readjust? I, I think Randy can contribute to that debate and help push 
good debate along. As you know, as you said, I've tried to push this along for many, many years. It's not a, it's an uphill battle, but I do think that he will be a contributor to help do that. And I think depending on what other appointments are made and other things that um, I'm hopeful that we can make progress in that direction with Randy. I think it very much depends on what other appointments are made. And I'm glad you bring that up because um, our Bloomberg intelligence analysts, Nathan Dean and Ben Elliott, have made the point that Randy Carls, as the Fed vice chair for supervision, would have limited clout as long as Janet Yellen is chair. Um, and, of course, he still needs to be confirmed as well. So his start date may not be mm-hmm. until fourth quarter or later. What does he do in the meantime to get his ducks in order? Who? Uh, Randy, Randy Quarles? Quarles before? Well, he's got, yeah, he's got, he's got to prepare for confirmation hearings, and that's, that's a huge uh, undertaking for anybody. So he has, he has, uh, he has a lot of work, work to do, I suspect, in preparing himself for that, both on, with, for questions coming from uh, on, on the regulatory side and supervision, but also on monetary policy. So uh, I think he has he has uh, a lot of homework to do, but I, I think he's perfectly capable and uh, a good person for this. What would be his first order of business, presuming he is confirmed and Janet Yellen is still Fed chair? I think his certainly on the supervision side, uh, he is vice chair for supervision, and he will have mm-hmm. a lot of responsibility about how the supervisory process unfolds, how the Fed approaches regulatory issues, whether they cut back on things like uh, uh, reviews of community banks and, and other. I mean, there's lots of things on the table. Dan Rulo left a whole menu of things in his last speech about things that the Fed yeah. needed to consider. Uh, so I think there's a lot of opportunity that he can, yeah. he can through his leadership, can do. Professor Plosser, uh, Chair Yellen will, will uh, speak. We'll have testimony tomorrow before the House. Is she presenting a limited central bank or is a central bank of which you were a member for a bit? Would you suggest they have overreached and, begone, and gone beyond your acclaimed phrase, a limited central bank? Well, I think the central, central banks around the world have overreached. And I think it's, it's, it's very dangerous. And, it's, and the risks we face in the coming years or the consequences of that could be long time, could be felt. Are, are the time. risks there that we need to be a coordinated action as we see out of Portugal a few weeks ago? Will coordination diminish the overreach of central banks? No, I, in fact, I'm afraid that the, if their efforts, if their efforts to coordinate, it will be uh, quite the opposite because there'll be central banks reacting to what other central banks are doing in other countries. And, you know, who's to say, do I react to, does the central bank react to Portugal? Do they react to the ECB? Do they react to Russia? Right. It's just, it's, I, I think that's a dangerous path to go down. The coordination ought to be setting, setting uh, common inflation targets yeah. would be a better way, a form of coordination. Charles Plosser, thank you so much. He's a former president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, of course, associated with Chicago. Uh, Vanderbilt, and of course with his years uh, at Rochester and the Simon School where Mr. Koch, Mr. Lakota has a shingle out, I believe at the moment. We are honored to bring in now someone that David Remnick wrote about, I believe it was yesterday for the New Yorker uh, magazine. Let me quote completely. There has also been a great deal of solid journalism committed by Adam Davidson of The New Yorker 
Timothy O'Brien of Bloomberg Yay. and others on Trump's business history and his links to et cetera, et cetera. Now joining us from Bloomberg View, Timothy O'Brien. Tim, I'm going to go to the heart of your reporting and the heart of your acclaim on looking at the president of the United States. In your acclaim book of years ago, you said this guy's not as rich as we think we are. With everything that's going on, do you have a sense or do you have reporting that there were agreements made with outside parties because he wasn't that well off? Were there periods in 08, 07, 09 where he had to sign some kind of deal? I mean, I think if you look at his, his business career, Tom, he hits the skids in the late 80s and early 90s. He loses the real estate. He ends up giving up a big chunk of the casinos. And from the early 90s, really until The Apprentice launches in 2004, um, the large banks have shunned him. He's lo- lost most of his key holdings, and he's really willing to do deals mm-hmm. with almost anybody who walks into Trump Tower. I mean, and so much of this, and there was a great essay today about just the facts, just would everybody just get back to, you know, reporting and not getting ahead of the facts, like Woodward and Bernstein ran into some trouble even with Watergate. To you animals who are doing adult journalism What's the focus in the cacophony of Washington right now? What are the pros focusing on who are grinding this story out every day? I think it's always got to be on the money trail, Tom. I think it's uh, this is an old adage, follow the money in journalism. But it's, it, it is the source of power and influence ultimately in all things. And um, I think that that's a very fruitful path to people to stay on with Trump. We've obviously looked at it here at Bloomberg in terms of both his and his son-in-law and his children's relationships with um, Russian business partners and and funds that have come through uh, unexpected locales like Iceland. When we look at the fact that this is Don Trump Jr. who's reportedly had these conversations, can we presume that the president directed any of this, or is it something where Donald Trump Jr. acted out on his own accord, that he did it on his own and, and there was a Chinese wall between him and his father? I don't think we should presume anything, Scarlett. I think we should wait for the facts. Uh, having said that, there's never really been a Chinese wall between Donald Trump Jr. and his father in their whole existence. Um, in fact, in, uh, in, the, in the last one of the last articles I wrote about the Trump family's relations with Russian business partners one of Trump's old business partners gave me this very great quote, a guy named Jody Chris, about how Donald Jr. and his father operated. And he said, Donald was always in charge. Donald had to agree to every term of every deal and had to sign off on everything. Nothing happened unless he said it was okay to do it. Mm-hmm. Even if Donald Jr. shook your hand on a deal, he came back downstairs to renegotiate if his father told him to. And that would be the case now as well? Oh, I'm certain of it. Yeah, and I think they've had very flimsy um, trusts set up to insulate the the family business from White House decision making. I don't. I I think they've shown actually disdain for having strong barriers between their business life and their policy. Do you life. your new essay in uh, Bloomberg View? I think encapsulates great defining presidential downward. We have many people listening who are supporters of the president. Many people who have levels of outrage. How do you perceive Tim O'Brien, the counsel that he's receiving within the White House? And let me reverse that. How alone is this president? Um, He's someone who's never really taken counsel from anyone. He is his own first and last counsel. There's a a little separate tier there that I think involves Ivanka, 
his daughter and Jared Kushner's son-in-law. He will listen to them at the end of the day. And then it just drops off a steep cliff there in terms of him listening to other people. Uh, so in that sense, he's always been a loner, but it's how he prefers to operate. Would we have heard of all the stuff of the last two or three days unless somebody was getting in front of the news flow, like Mr. Mueller's coming out with something or this, that, or other thing? Are they essentially front-running what was going to become news as, as well? I don't know. I, I think the Times I think the Times stories are from just good, solid gumshoe reporting, and I think yeah, they pursued a storyline. Knowing Trump as you do from writing his biography, um, which he didn't appreciate because he sued you, um, and the case was later dismissed, right? Right. Um, what, what do you so think? So he participated extensively with the book, and I think it's a – I think the book – is a fairly rotund, 360-degree look at his life and career. I like that, a rotund look. What do you he think- was looking at me when he said it. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think is happening when it comes to his discussions with his lawyers? I mean, the, the president now has so many different legal consultants or, or folks uh, um, consulting right. him on legal issues. What 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 are the conversations he's having? Because Mark Kasowitz, his personal attorney, does not exactly have a background in, in doing what he's being asked to do. Well, in fact, Mark Kasowitz was the attorney he used when he sued me. And when they litigated with, uh, with my legal team and myself, mm-hmm. um, Mark Kasowitz had no background in libel litigation. He was somebody who filled Trump's comfort zone. And the issue now in Washington is Kasowitz has no background in handling congressional investigations, but Trump is comfortable with the way he yeah. rolls. And is Trump also directing him as a result? If you're talking about a lawyer who doesn't have familiarity with congressional testimony, with congressional investigations, with libel laws, for instance, this is all being directed by the president? Well, I, th- I think he's going to have to try to take some advice around some of this stuff yeah. because it's unfamiliar territory. But again, Trump often does what he wants to right. do. Let me talk like a Republican woman, one of our listeners who maybe they voted for Trump, but they're not a big Trump fan. All the Democrats are in outrage. The liberal media is in outrage. The Post, the Times and all the rest of it. Do you see Republicans wavering that maybe supported the president, but just the day after day drip of all this stuff is beginning to have an effect or are they still dying? You know, we're going to support the president. Look, I, I think the people who supported the president um uh, uh, are looking, one part of his support group wants jobs. I think that's the post-industrial blue-collar worker yeah. that voted for him. I think affluent Republicans who voted for him wanted tax cuts, yeah. and they wanted to see smart deregulation. Yeah. He's not delivering on policy. So to the extent that they right. like uh, his mojo and the way that he runs in Washington, great. But at the end of the day, the president, like all presidents, is going to have yeah. to deliver the goods. Uh, Tim O'Brien, thank you so much. Let me do a shout out, folks, for Bloomberg View. You can make it a regular morning and a Twitter feed kind of uh, thing. What do you get? Let me explain what O'Brien and David Shipley have done. Just on the cover of Bloomberg View today, first of all, you don't get Tim O'Brien. They buried him before below the fold. That's not right. You get Mohammed El Arian. Nariana Kachalakota, who we just mentioned at Rochester, where Professor Plosser used to be. You get a view of Grand Rapids, Michigan, and the great economist Tyler Cowen, the great uh, George Mason uh, uh, joy, on why China may never uh, move to a more modern China. Bloomberg View, smart and eclectic. Look for that from Shipley and O'Brien. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. 
Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.